Hey everyone, welcome to Resilience Unraveled. This podcast is the result of my fascination with subjects like resilience, accountability, burnout, life fulfillment and other life and work-based performance issues, as well as many of the other obsessions I bump into in my life. I spend my time working with highly successful teams, people and organisations, and this podcast introduces their remarkable stories and expertise, as well as my own synthesis of the key issues, strategies, tips, tools and resources to thrive in life. If you find this podcast useful, why not go over to our site qedod.com. If you'd like some resources on how to manage and beat burnout, head to qedod.com forward slash burnout 2019 for some goodies. Stay tuned to the end to find out details of how to order a free ebook. Enjoy the podcast. So today I'm talking to Stefan Grenier and um, very interested to talk to him because he's got a fascinating track record. Um, someone, well, why don't I start by introducing him and he can tell you more about him himself. So good evening, Stefan, from, rain, from the rainy UK. Well, good evening from snowy Canada. <laughs> I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. I'm from the northeast of England, and so I used to love snow when I was young. We never have it really anymore down here. But I mean, you, when you have snow, you do have snow, don't you? Yeah, quite a, quite a lot. And uh, I, I understand our easternmost province is getting uh, 70 centimeters in the next uh, day. So uh, that's quite a lot of snow. So I'm glad we're uh, we're escaping that one. So we said you're having a snowy environment with actually, without saying where you are. So where in the world are you? <laughs> yep. So you're in Canada. Whereabouts in Canada are you? So I uh, live uh, in two places. Um, uh, I straddle the Ottawa River. So uh, the Ottawa River, uh, you know, separates the province of Quebec from um, the province of Ontario. In the summertime, I live on a lake uh, on the province of Quebec side of things. And in the winter, it's too miserable there. So we moved to the Ottawa city and yes. <laughs> survived the winter here. Fantastic. It sounds very glamorous, but everything does when you live in the south of the UK. So, you know. Oh, really? Uh, well... <laughs> You know, just to connect with our, our, your UK audience, uh, I rented a place uh, this winter right across the street from our Governor General's residence. Oh. So every morning I have my coffee looking at our Governor General's uh, lands. Uh, beautiful place uh, to look at. Of yeah. course, uh, it's all fenced in. Uh, but uh, yeah, so... Uh, I, hope you, I hope you saluted. Yes, absolutely. Every morning. <laughs> Due deference. <laughs> Every morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's brilliant you spent some time with us today. So tell, tell me a bit, Stefan, uh, you've got a fascinating track record, but just tell me um, how you describe what you currently do. Well, I think uh, after spending three decades in the military, I decided to serve my country in a different way uh, by, by helping workplaces rehumanize um, their processes, rehumanize uh, some of their leadership and management approaches, and really, um, you know, bring to life this whole narrative around mental health in the workplace. We have complicated things so much. Everything is about neuroplasticity and cognitive behavioral therapy, and I'm all for the research and the clinical side of things. But I think what our leaders, our managers, um, our corporate leaders are having a difficulty to contend with is how do you translate all of that science into some practical day-to-day -day things that will make a difference for their bottom line, for their people, et cetera. So, so that's what I've decided to dedicate uh, the rest of my working life to. Okay, fantastic. Well, before we um, drill into that area, which is fascinating, obviously something that I'm passionately involved in myself, let's talk about those three decades in the military, you said. 
So that's right. I spent three decades there. The first decade was uh, in the 80s. So uh, unlike, not unlike uh, our, our British counterparts, uh, we were we were during the Cold War. Uh, you know, our, yeah. our mission in, in our particular army brigade was to defend the northern flank of Europe in case of the Russians decided to invade. So yeah. we would deploy to Norway and um, and exercise there with, with British forces, American forces. The second part of my decade, of course, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, you know, the world became a very unsafe place, as everyone knows. Uh, you know, everything was so predictable during the Cold War. But so the second part of, of uh, my career, or the second decade of my career, was spent deploying all over the world, uh, including one particular deployment in Rwanda in 1994 during and after the genocide. And that deployment really took a toll on me. Yeah. Um, I deployed afterwards, uh, but it is that deployment that really uh, pivoted my, uh, my sort of career because after coming back, although uh, you know, I finished that second decade of my career, that propelled me in the last decade of my career where I dedicated all my time, energy, and attention with the full leadership of, of top generals in, in the Canadian military yeah. to re-engineer how the military was dealing with the issues of, of mental ill health. Uh, and really allowed me as a as a as a colonel as a I would say senior leader, but in, yeah. in the junior end of things, right? As sure. a senior leader, uh, to help our leadership change things around, uh, whereby you know the view now is is clear that uh, mental health in the workplace, from a, even from a military perspective, is not necessarily a clinical matter; it's a leadership matter. And so that philosophy, I think, was was uh, I would say not revolutionary, but a very different way of looking at things. So that, that was my, my third decade, essentially. Right. So what were the signs that you were observing that led you to believe that change was necessary? Um, quite frankly, they're not necessarily signs, but they're facts. Um, so when you start uh, struggling from a mental health problem, whether you're a minor, whether you're an accountant in a, in a law firm or whatnot, uh, the reality is... is um, you're not going to necessarily know you're not doing well. Mm. The reason why is because the very part of your human anatomy that is not well mm. uh, is the very same part that's going to tell you you're not well. So the irony with mental health is often you're not well and you don't even know yourself. The other, the other fact I would say is that once you start realizing that you may or may not need help and, and you decide to actually reach out for help, that help is, is scarce in the best of times. Yeah. So not that it's, it, it's improper or, or, or not correct, uh, but your appointments with a professional will be weeks apart. Yeah. And the fact is, human beings need more than an appointment every once in a while to recover. They need ongoing support. And so um, when, I, when I've come to realize through my own journey of recovery, that you know we don't recover in our doctor's offices. We, we recover out there in society, out there in the workplace with our colleagues. So it, it's incumbent upon business leaders, uh, incumbent upon all of us to take an active role in ensuring that we as a society, as workplaces, we don't abdicate the responsibility to supporting people just to doctors. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't work, not because doctors are incompetent, because they need the support of society. And we know social support is such a huge factor for mental health recovery. So all this said, you know, these are, these are not only signs, but they're, I think it's very factual. It's, it kind of makes sense. Uh, 
But the reality is it's easier to talk about these things than to actually make them happen. So that's what I've been doing in the last 35, 40 years now is making these things happen. Uh, and, that's, and that's an interesting observation, isn't it? Because there's a, there seems to be a move in the, the whole world of mental health towards medicalizing the thing. You know, it's, it's everything from low mood through to borderline personality disorder is, you know, effectively a mental health thing. Yeah. It's becoming indistinct. It's becoming overly medicalized, especially in the workplace. It's, um, it seems to be a thing that where, absolutely, as you say, it's often a failure of leadership in, in the first place. And therefore, leadership and culture building is part of the solution. And, um, and I often think that this idea that we, we disempower managers by overly medicalizing things so people don't realize that actually with the workplace is the solution to mental health issues as much as it is a problem, as, as, is, the, as is the sort of social fabric of community as well. Absolutely. So what you, what you say resonates uh, uh, very largely with me. Because, as I said earlier, I think we have overcomplicated things. By the way, the, uh, you know, everything we do is, is a complement to clinical care. Nothing we do, nothing I say here today is to say that people don't need doctors, we no. don't need pharmaceuticals. Absolutely, absolutely. not. Yeah, absolutely. However, we certainly look at things here. I look at things as a as recovery for mental health as a bit of a three-legged stool. Imagine buying a two-legged stool. Yeah. Right. Who buys a tool? Nobody buys a two-legged stool. But when it comes to recovery, we have armed our corporations with a two-legged stool approach. One leg is the employee assistance program where, you know, an employee can call to get six appointments in Canada anyways with a psychotherapist. Uh, and after that, well, good luck with that. Right. Yeah. You're referred back to the healthcare system and then you wait for a year before you can continue. to. But that's the first leg. The second leg is normal companies, good big companies have good benefit plans. So if I'm prescribed some antidepressants or some sleeping pills, yeah. I'm not out of pocket. So that's the second leg. Where's the third leg? Yeah. Well, the third leg is the societal support, the peer support, the social support people need between those medical appointments. So most co corporations are well equipped on the EAP side of things, uh, employee assistance program on the mm. benefit side, but there's a, there's a leg missing. Who buys a two-legged stool? And corporations have two-legged stools and they're wondering why their short-term, long-term disabilities are going up. Yeah. And, and also they overemphasize productivity and their people follow. And I say, when you focus on your people, productivity will follow. Yes. Yeah. And that's interesting because often especially in larger organizations, you see this division of um, attention between HR and the operational management chain. And often you'll find that um, HR, HR spend a lot of time, let, let me rephrase that, that the operational um, leadership people become very clear about what they cannot do. And they have very little idea of what they can do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. and, and whether that's coming from HR or whether it's coming from the over-medicalization or the over-complication, I often think actually there are some very simple things that we can just do as human beings, which happen to be, you know, strange how leaders and managers often are, you know, team members and often suffer from the same things that the people have, you know, the people experience. We sort of see, we almost dehumanize leaders and managers sometimes, don't we? And I just wonder what you think, or I wonder what you think about the simple things that leaders and managers can do within a business to build a culture of support and a culture that's, that's actually focused on proactive um, attention. Well, I think it's funny you ask me that this week because earlier this week I saw a post on LinkedIn 
uh, from a, um, a researcher who said uh, there was a picture of two people in suits disagreeing. And um, you know, the, the question was, how difficult is it to have a discussion when you don't agree with your boss or your right? And um, my response to that was, it's very easy if we apply some of the things, things we learned in kindergarten. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so as we grow up into the adult world, um, and I know it sounds very trivial for me to say that, but adults, I think in many cases, are pretty bad offenders when it comes to not adhering to some of the basic things we were all taught how to behave when we were very, very young. We enter the adult world, um, power differentials start appearing. Uh, people also believe that um, when they go to work, they have to adopt a work persona. And, and so I'm mixing a bunch of concepts together here, but essentially some of the things that are very fundamental to our upbringing that we, we respected and we were punished for when we were children still apply today. So if so, leaders- so, Such as? Yeah, well, well, such as respect, such wow. as, you know, things like that. And I know respect is an overutilized world because I think in our world now, I, I, I'm in, in a place now as an older adult where I, I'm thinking, do I have to pre-apologize pre before I say anything? I might offend somebody. But essentially, uh, letting other people speak, listening. very sm So people will say, well, I listen. Well, do you really or do you hear? Because often in the conversations, uh, you know, we're more concerned about what we're going to say next than actually listening. So those are some of the things where I think in many cases, if leaders went back to basics, that's step number one. Number two, I think that uh, where, where leaders uh, go wrong is, is they, they keep endorsing the clinical narrative, the clinical yeah. theories, the academic theories over, uh, regarding mental ill health. And what that does, and I think you mentioned that earlier, is that it really dehumanizes, really uh, disarms leaders. Now, if you tell a, a guy like me, and by the way, I've been a boss my whole life. You know, at the age of uh, 19 and a half, I, I was commanding a, a very small team in the military, and then I grew from there. So I don't know what it's like to, to work in a workplace when you're not a boss. Yeah. However, you tell me as a boss, you know, your employee has a, a post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, I'm thinking, well, that's a disorder. It's pretty, it's pretty darn intimidating. I, I don't have clinical skills. Um, and so as a corporations uh, keep focusing on the clinical narrative regarding mental health, the unintended consequence of that is it causes uh, dislocation, disengagement from leaders who, who socially start believing that they can't do a darn thing to help somebody because they're not a doctor. Yeah. When we do know that, and, and this is perhaps a, a third thing I would throw, you know, for the benefit of this podcast, is that when you are in a, in a position to support another human being, um, nothing you say to that person, the words you use will not necessarily make a big difference. Yeah. The relationship you build with the person, the other person knowing you care, is actually therein lies the solution. Yeah. And so for for you know when you look at those three general aspects, it's pretty simple. Now that those are not cures, right? But they are how we as leaders can actually support the individual, the human being. And I might end by this, Russell. I will tell you that, and I alluded to that a few seconds ago. I believe that human beings who go to work every day, the mass, the majority of them are good people. Yeah. They're not bad people. They're good people. Assuming I'm correct, 
those same people are very capable at home um, in their communities of supporting a neighbor, supporting a spouse, a child, a parent, an uncle, a sister, a cousin. Those same skills, for some reason, when people get in their car and they go to work, that same approach, that ability to have a bit of empathy, that ability to listen and have a conversation, we think we, we, that doesn't belong in the workplace. Yes. And, but it does. It does. So our approach uh, you know, in, in our organization is when we go in and teach managers and things of that, is we don't tell them we're going to give you the tools. We actually approach it by saying, you already have the tools. Yeah. You just think you can't use them in the workplace. Yes. Now, unless you're a psychopath or a bully or not a nice person, you have those tools, right? Yes. That's, very, uh, that's very interesting. I've just been making some notes as you were chatting. I was just having to think about that. And I think well, we interviewed a, um, a guest on the podcast. Forgive me, I'm really poor with names. Uh, Frank Reed, I think it was. He was an expert in suicide prevention and suicide care. And the, one of the, he, said, he said a couple of things which I'd be interested in on your take, which is the first one, which is that um, men and women experience mental health issues. Um, most of the mechanisms that work for women don't necessarily work for men and yet men at work have the vast majority of the, actually the workplace mental health issues so we've we've created particularly in hr and employee assistance programs mechanisms which are focused on helping women be more successful mm. but we don't necessarily have a strong toolkit to really help guys and it's often those people if you look at the the um, predominance of suicide in the workplace it's nearly all male uh, and part of that's because of um, it's often in male-dominated, you know, environments. Sure. But sure. but that's a, a it's a factor, isn't it? It's a it's a feature of things. So I think there's something that's fascinating there. Um, and the second point I'd like to raise with you is um, you talked about sort of coming back to this idea of treating people um, almost the way we were trained as children, which I find fascinating, because I often find the workplace has become slightly childlike. And infantilized a little bit. So, in other words, we treat man, we treat people in our work teams, we treat people in our um, cultures and such like like children. We're terrified to hurt their feelings. Which, you know, your point about the pro apology is absolutely the case, isn't it? We sort we sort of lost that ability to have those really adult conversations. Part of which is sometimes challenging people to do more than they're capable of because actually mm. you believe in someone more than they believe in self than themselves. And the third point to think about, so I just wondered whether that's another leg. And the last thing is that this um, Frank guy who, who talks about the suicide thing said, the whole point of, the whole way that you prevent suicide is that you just have to ask the question, are you okay? Yeah. Yeah. And you just have to care enough to ask the question on a regular basis. And I, and I help, and also I like your point about we already have the skill set. So uh, I'm in, in no particular order. I just would be interested in your views on those sort of three things. Well, on the suicide issue uh, and, and the point you raised about, uh, you know, our HR methodologies or, or systems mainly um, cater to the needs or the approaches that work for women. That's not, it's something I've never heard before. But as you say this, it, it, it resonates. So I don't have a response to that, but I just want to acknowledge that it's making me think uh, and it, it's bringing another parallel thought to mind is that the medical model uh, that works for physical injuries or physical uh, illnesses or ailments is not the model that we can use 
to support people who, right? So yeah. to your point where if we built a system that, that caters to the needs of women, well, of course, it's not going to work for men. The same parallel I would make by saying the way we treat physical illnesses and injuries uh, c- cannot be transported. Those same yes. methodologies and approaches cannot be approached. In other words, if I have a broken leg, uh, whether or not uh, I'm supported at work um, and, and I see somebody else than my doctor uh, in, in three weeks, the, the bones are going to fuse as, as fast yes. in that past, as long as I'm treatment compliant. Yes. Not so for mental ill health. Back. Agreed. Right? So, so the pathway to recovery is uh, requires additional tools for mental health that are often not present because everything we know and do inside workplaces follows sort of the, the medical model for physical recovery of illnesses yeah. or injuries, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, I, I think we still have a lot to learn, um, you know, in, in the space of mental health. But, and I do agree with you that in some cases, I, you know, I, all of our clients now, it's... Um, it's, it's, it's quite obvious that people in workplaces are walking on eggshells more and more. Yeah. Uh, you know, and as I said earlier, we are in a society where you almost wonder if you should pre-apologize because you, yeah. you might just offend somebody. I remember a radio interview where a panel on, on the Canadian Broadcast Corporation here in Canada, a panel was being interviewed. And it was a pretty hot topic. It was a hot discussion. And on the panel, and I was driving on the panel, somebody said to, let's say, the other panelist, uh, Russell, said, oh, my God, Russell, I can't believe you're not offended by, by the comment that you just heard. Yeah. And Russell responded, I have a right not to be offended. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that maybe, maybe uh, your listeners will think, well, these, these two guys are from the older generation. Mm-hmm. But I do believe that, yes, uh, there is um, a propensity to... Uh, uh, to, to uh, to, to, everything is so fragile, it seems. And I, on that note, I would acknowledge too that on a parallel plane, not everything is trauma. I don't know if you guys are going Great through point. this. Great yeah. yeah. I don't know if you guys yeah. are going through this in the UK, but there's an yeah. oversimplification now yeah. of, of the word trauma. And everybody seems to be traumatized. And I'm thinking, yeah. no, you can be upset. Yeah. You can be disturbed. Yeah. Uh, but that does, or you can be angry. That yeah. doesn't mean you're traumatized. No. Right. And so um, we live in a, in a fast paced world where everything is a soundbite and that oversimplification. So when I say the skills we learn in kindergarten, how to behave and how to be nice to people is, is not meant to say that we need uh, workplaces that are, are catering to more and more but that's how you avoid conflict. This is how you have a respectful conversation. This yeah. is how you, you know, humility is a lost art, especially for bosses. Yeah. You know, the big trend here in North America, uh, and I believe that's a correct trend, is vulnerability and humility yeah. are lost, the lost art. Yeah. If you're a boss and a leader, that doesn't mean you need to know everything. In fact, a good boss uh, doesn't need to know everything. He knows who to get. Yes. Who, to re- who to listen to, and it surrounds himself with the yes. people who have the knowledge and the skills to, to achieve success. Um, but it's, we do live in the world where, you know, the boss thinks he needs to know everything. Yeah. Right? And, that's not and, it, and it's peculiar, isn't it? Because actually so much of leadership training over the last 30 years has been attempting to minimize that approach. I mean, the whole rise of the coach, coaching mm-hmm. culture and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, we can argue that actually it's profoundly failed if actually we're seeing so much of that, um, maybe it's just innate behavior. 
innate macho posturing and often that Correct. doesn't matter which gender you are and uh, you know it seems to be incumbent on people who are in charge to you know to to not want to be vulnerable it's almost like you know, i've fought to get here now now it's my turn yeah. <laughs> stand back and brace yourselves yeah. prepare for some real leadership you know you sort of you sort of sense that from time to time don't you I do. And, you know, I don't run a large company. I run a consultancy with a couple of dozen human beings involved. But often when we're having discussions, I've been catching myself over the last couple of years saying, hey, listen, guys, this is what I think, but I'm happy to be wrong. Yeah. Right. And I'm not saying that's the way to do it, but it's been sort of my way to let people know that it's okay for them to disagree. Yes. And I, I overtly say that because I want them to disagree. I don't, I don't want to fail. And, if and, do, I, and, and I think it comes back to this spoon feeding approach we have where we've treated people like children for a long time. And so every time managers have a bash at standing back and being more humble, if that's the phrase, mm. and they say, well, actually, I don't know the answer. People just stand there agape thinking, well, what are you for then? And the number yeah. of times I've heard good coaches being accused by their reports of saying, well, what's that person for? You know, what mm-hmm. do they actually bring to the party? Yeah. You know, the, and, and I think there's something about, we've got to fix the culture both ways. You've got to develop people to, to want to be empowered. I mean, blimey, we've only been saying that for 20 years. I can't believe I'm just saying that to you, to you again, really. Something cu- culturally gone wrong here, isn't it, with development over the last 20 years for us to need to have this conversation in this way, I think. Well, it's funny you say that because um, I posted an article on on my blog, uh, I would say nine months ago now. It's about what to look for when you're trying to pick a consultant to come in and do mental health training and, uh, you know, what questions to ask yourself and things like that. And we highly recommend that if you're, if an organization is going to say, okay, we need to do training around mental health. No, number one, don't pick the clinical model. Pick the leadership model, right? Yeah. They're going to say, well, where, where is that? Well, some companies approach is from non clinical. But what we also say is don't only train managers. Yeah. True. If you're going to change the rules and the, you know, going to work on, work on the entire organization. So yeah. the rules and you need, you need to provide this new way of looking at things to everyone. You can't just train half of your company, right? Yeah. You need to, uh, you know, give the benefit to all employees to understand, oh, this is the new lens. And by the way, employees, stop blaming the boss yeah. because you're not doing well. And boss, uh, start supporting your people, yeah. right? So simple. this is a team, right? It's, it, it's, it's pretty simple, but we've forgotten how to do things. I think a hundred years, hundred years ago, yeah. I think yeah. a lot of these things we're teaching happened very organically in communities and in workplaces. Yes. No, and, what, and what's fascinating, and what's fascinating here is we we often talk in this country about this the rise of Generation Z or Z you might call it there, um, the millennials and all that sort of blah, and um, we sit and judge the millennials and say things like, well, they're they're not resilient, they're not competent, they're very needy, all this sort of stuff. But we're the generation that bred them, and we're blaming them for yeah, yeah, being yeah. the people, the outputs of mm-hmm. our development, and I always find that very odd and I think you're right in terms of you know if you want people to be different you've got to not just blip, you know if you can't you've got to you've got to have a holistic view in the way that you develop people otherwise change just does not stick and whether it's mental That's health right. or organizational change that you know the, the, the thing works together and I and I find these days that you know one of the challenges I find I don't know if you find this as a consultant I find you know 
conversations with clients saying what you need to do is make our staff more robust, more resilient, defend against burnout and all that sort of stuff. And I say, you do realize burnout is a workplace medical condition. If people are burning out, it's because actually some of your processes are poor. You know, you're making your people ill. And, you know, and it's very, it's very interesting when you say all research, um, the most soul destroying place where you go to die are in meetings. Oh yeah. You know, how many, how many mental health conditions start sitting, Mm. listening to someone wang on for three or four hours about something with a group of 50 or 60 people and you're sitting there thinking, you know, I've got some work to do. Uh, And it is fascinating, isn't it? So organizational process is also another leg. I think that's part of this sort of issue, isn't it? Yeah, and I find you know you, that that's correct. I also find that uh, we would not behave that way if it were physical injuries, right? Yes. If a if a company awesome. constantly has uh, employees falling off roofs, yeah, uh, you know, uh, from a health and safety perspective, and they injure themselves from a health and safety perspective. Uh, there will be somebody who will come in and say, oh my God, there's no barriers around the roof. There, yeah. Nobody's tied, nobody has harnesses, nobody has training, right? So there is always an individual responsibility yeah. to, 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 um, uh, to, to share with the employer, but the employer needs to put the training in place, yeah. needs to buy the harnesses, and needs to give extra time for employees to actually erect those barriers, and the house will be built less fast. And the employers, we understand that, from a physical health and safety perspective. But when it comes to mental health, psychological health and safety in the workplace, what you're right, you know, downloading this and saying, go be more resilient. That's like telling the employee, I'll do nothing to prevent you from falling off a roof. But next time you fall a roof, you better not break a leg because now we gave you resiliency training. That's right. So, you know, so it's interesting how companies, uh, you know, they suck and blow in a sense, right? And uh, this is where you, that's, that's our focus is to help them stop that, yeah. to actually put in place the mechanisms where the same amount of due diligence that we would to put barriers around the roof and buy harnesses and all this, this is what can happen from a mental health perspective yeah. to actually meet the psychological health and safety needs of people. And, and, and we, again, related to a couple of podcasts ago, we, we spoke to a, an American expert in this area, um, Sophie Spencer Thomas, and and she was actually talking about the move to move the move to um, think about mental health and suicide prevention as being a health and safety issue, and actually then it would have teeth. Then it would be seen as something uh, tangible, something that has a risk element right. around it. And she Correct. said once, and apparently she was talking about a particular case that was going through the American law uh, courts at the moment, where. Um, duty of care was going to be directly attributed to managers who failed in their duty to stop a suicide or stop the processes of burnout. So, I mean, that would be that would be fascinating in terms of the work we'd be able to do rolling forward. Because actually, you often feel as if um, you often feel as if you're um, or, or a company feels as if it's doing its people a favour, you know, in looking yeah. after their mental health rather than actually saying, as you say, giving them the tools to to, right. to actually fulfill their potential and build their actual productivity because that's the point of it isn't it correct that's right and i go back to the roof analogy right yeah we would we would we would never behave that way from uh, from that perspective i'm not sure if your listeners or even you are aware but um the canadian standard association put out 
uh, a standard on psychological health and safety several years ago. Right. Uh, the standard is, uh, I think it's still a free download. But um, uh, Dr. Ian Arnold here in Canada, who is heading the Workforce Advisory Committee um, from the Mental Health Commission of Canada, I was on his committee for a few years. Um, he, he's really the grandfather behind the standard. And it is, it is a process to follow like any other uh, ISO standard. Um, mm-hmm. And so that, that may be interesting to your listeners or, or to yourself. Um, and, and, it, and yes, jurisprudence is changing. You know, uh, the law is changing around these matters. And, um, and when you alluded to Gen Z and uh, the millennials, I think employers of choice uh, will, um, will start paying attention to this more and more. Yeah. And they will stop uh, losing good employees, right? Yeah. Because and, and uh, blaming the employees. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. these these new generations, they're not sticking around. Yeah. If this place doesn't value you and value you or mental health, and it doesn't give you a bit of time to breathe, and doesn't yeah. equip you with the psychological harnesses you need to perform your job in a safe way, yeah, they're out of there. Yeah. So the workplace of tomorrow better catch up quick, yeah. Yeah. because they will lose their place in the market. And people always talk, talk, I mean, the workplace has always been the place where people do their growing up. I mean, mm. you were always trained to be a worker once you started to work. People seem to think it's the job of educators to, to, you know, to build a workforce for the next 40 years. Well, it's mm. not, is it? So mm. it's, it's incumbent on us as employers and, um, yeah. and us in our work to help organizations to be able to, to build that capacity. Otherwise, yep. you know, what's the point, really? Yeah, yeah. I've just noticed out the corner of my eye that we've been going for <laughs> beyond the time allotted. So I want to be courteous to your oh. time at this moment. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, um, and I'm sure everybody else here would be um, fascinated by finding out more about you. So, how how can people um, access your site? Maybe look at some of your um, work, and perhaps look at how they could engage more um, formally with you. So my name is uh, Stéphane Grenier. Uh, so if uh, my blog is www.stephanegrenier.com, uh, posted some articles there. Um, uh, my book is uh, published and is, uh, you know, there's information on the book as well. And uh, what's, what's the name of the book, Stéphane? After the War. Ah, yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. And, um, and also I, I uh, deliver quite a lot of keynote speeches around North America, mainly Canada, of course, sometimes uh, in the States. Uh, so a lot of information can be found there. And corporately, one of our, our, um, our flagship service offering is uh, launching and managing peer support programs for large workplaces. And supportyourpeople.com, supportyourpeople.com is where you can find out more about that. And if people have questions or they need to reach out to us or to me, uh, you just click a button and an email will be sent. So uh, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. Fantastic. Well, bizarrely enough, 65% of all of our listeners are in North America. So it's not peculiar. We talk about the UK audience all the time, but it's, uh, we seem to have uh, many more North Americans, which is, which is great. And uh, yeah. so thank you so much for spending time. I personally could spend uh, easily another half an hour chatting about this, but uh, we shouldn't because I know you uh, have other things to do as well. So thank, thank you, you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. You take care. 
Thanks for listening today. You can go to our site qedod.com forward slash podcasts and subscribe to hear other titles in our series. Or you can contact us at info at qedod.com to hear and find out more about tough love, leadership, accountability, resilience and burnout. You can go to our site qedod.com forward slash burnout 2019 to hear and get access to a load of resources to help you manage and fight burnout. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash free ebook to hear more about the fundamentals of resilience. Until the next episode, keep on thriving!